Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I pray that the words of my mouth, the meditations of our hearts, may be an honor and a glory to you. Amen. So these last two weeks, we have looked at Paul's teaching regarding human sexuality. And I'm sure you probably noted that it's a bit of a countercultural message. Um, the first part, probably perhaps not as much, where Paul treats it as an appetite and something to be controlled like other appetites. But I'm pretty sure the first half of 1 Corinthians 7, where Paul says that he prefers celibacy as a Christian ideal versus marriage, was probably new for some people. And I think what we're going to read today is an important focusing of why that is important for Paul. And before I get into it today, it, it, this relates to some things that have been going on in the world this week. Uh, in particular, Paul's letter to the Corinthians, his views on marriage and what constitutes proper Christian action and the good life, if you were to use such words, is a specific reaction to the specific circumstances of the gospel. Now, you may be tuning in to us for the first time, and because we're going through Corinthians, not necessarily the gospel according to Matthew and Mark, you may be wondering, what's the gospel? The gospel, plainly put, is the message that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, true God from true God, but also truly human, who in his life of healing, of doing ministry, of preaching, of correction of sin, but also of freeing of sinners, showed forth what perfect obedience to God looked like. And in atonement for the people of Israel, but also for all nations' disobedience or sin, according to the normal religious use, in payment and to satisfy the cost of sin, Christ was obedient even to the point of allowing himself, as John says, to be condemned in our place, punished in our place, by the crucifixion on the cross until he was died and was buried. But that's not the total gospel, because the next part is, is God vindicates Jesus's obedience, Jesus's teaching, and witnesses that Jesus is indeed his son through the power of the resurrection. And for Paul and for the first Corinthians church and the second Corinthians church, all the churches in the New Testament, that was something that completely changed the way life was to be led, was to be focused, and was to be thought about. Now, I say that is important because this week we saw a bit of a reoccurrence of what I like to call the theistic God or the God of civil religion. And I think given the sways of culture, <coughs> where in these days there's a troubling lack of belief in just God existing, Churches can get a little too onto the line that believing in God is the target, is their calling and what they are pushed to promote. But what Jesus says in one of the Gospels is the demons believe God is one and they tremble. In times like these where God is evoked to something that is mushy, that is a feeling, well, that's a philosophy class, that is not a church. 
The church is called not just to the concept of God, but God as presented in his gospels, God as witnessed, crucified, died, and resurrected. It is a specific event in space and time to which we respond, and it Though we are saved through faith alone, just believing it factually or mentioning it or being open to it does not satisfy what this knowledge is intended to do. It is intended to change the world because the reality is if you truly believe that God came down, took on flesh, bore all the sins and separations of humanity, even to the point of being crucified by the religious and civil authorities, and again was resurrected and now offers that to you and to all who believe, the world's a very different place. And that is why Paul is making this difference between the old views of marriage, which is something that happens in the world and just kind of happens anyways, and this need for the church to respond in a new way. You, You can't do business as normal if The world isn't normal anymore. So let's go ahead and dive into 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17. However that may be, let each of you lead the life that the Lord has assigned, to which God called you. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time he was called already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his calling uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, but obeying the commandment of God is everything. Let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. Were you a slave when called? Do not be concerned about it. Even if you gain your freedom, make use of your present condition now more than ever. For whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a freed person belonging to the Lord. Just as whoever was free when called is now a slave to Christ. You were brought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. In whatever condition you were called, brothers and sisters, there remain with God. So Paul makes this first initial transition from the topic of marriage and family to pointing out that this news of the gospel comes into every situation and every calling and changes it. The the first part here where he's talking about circumcision or uncircumcision, there were in his day Jewish people who were ashamed of being Jewish and they would actually hide the physical marks of circumcision that showed they were Jewish to try to blend in with the Romans. But also in these churches you had Gentiles who hearing about Jesus and hearing about the law and Moses were ashamed, perhaps, that they weren't, they didn't have all these Jewish practices. And what Paul is here saying is that this great news of Jesus Christ makes such differences now the external. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're of this tribe or that tribe, this news of Christ and this change that has happened has made all of those things count for nothing. Paul points it here in verse 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing, 
but obeying the commandments of God is everything. Oh, this is most of Jesus' teaching summed up in, in so many words. It's not what goes into a mouth. It's not food that you eat that defiles, but it's what comes out of the mouth that defiles. And so Paul says, continuing, let each of you remain in the condition in which you were called. And he even goes and starts messing around with the polite civil society of ancient Rome. Were you a slave when called? We have made great strides in eradicating the sin of slavery from the face of the planet. And hopefully one day soon that shall be finished. But it is not, even for us, beyond, outside of our normal way of thinking that if you are a slave, you are somehow a lesser person. We do that even with terms of economics. If you're poor, that's somehow a punishment for you being a bad person. If life hasn't gone well for you, somehow that, that bad luck sticks to you and God doesn't love you as much as the person who is wealthy. That is not what Paul says the gospel is doing here. The slave who was not free in any external circumstances is by the gospel of Christ freed internally. And Paul here is pushing. This is not the strongest push he does in the New Testament. We have Philemon and Ephesians and others. But he's starting to knock at the wall of the institution. When he, I don't like this translation here, but if you can gain your freedom, you do it. Paul is, is here pushing against these ideas of human bondage and everything else. When he gets to 23, you were bought with a price. Do not become slaves of human masters. It's not the overt statement that I would like where Paul would say, well, you know, Christians, because Jesus bought you and he bought your slave, free them. But it's a strike in a good direction. But the main crux, though, because Paul was writing in the first century and sometimes it doesn't satisfy what we want it to in 20th, 21st century problems. But what Paul is here more going towards is that idea that these people that are viewed as lowly, going back to the beginning of this book, not many of you were wise, not many of you were the great debaters of the age, but God chose what was to shame what wasn't. Paul is here going to that same thing. The fact that these people are slaves does not in any way denigrate or hinder them in coming to God. That's the gospel message of Christ moving through them, is these people who had no freedom whatsoever are given absolute connection to the divine, to God's personhood that many of their masters were seeking and would never find. And Paul does turn this around too when he says, for whoever was called in the Lord as a slave is a free person belonging to God, just as whoever was free when called is a slave in Christ, verse 22. He is also saying that those who would want to use freedom to control, freedom to give, as we went a couple chapters ago, free reign to lust and desire, 
they are now, according to the gospel, to be brought in and controlled. So this, the main thing to get here is that the world is shifting around this message of the gospels. And Paul is saying that the times, they are a-changing. Verse 25. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give my opinion as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the impending crisis, it is well for you to remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you marry, you do not sin. And if a virgin marries, she does not sin. Yet those who marry will experience distress in this life, and I will spare you that. I mean, brothers and sisters, the appointed time has grown short. And from now on, let even those who have wives be as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. So Paul here continues, and he goes back kind of after that little expose on, on circumcision, uncircumcision, slavery. He gets back to the issue of marriage. Now, the first thing he does is, in saying that he views celibacy as higher than marriage, Paul opens up a sort of doorway that he here shuts. There were perhaps people who thought, well, you know, if, if it's not so good to be married... Maybe somehow I will serve God by getting a divorce or something so I can be more religious. Paul in verse 27 blocks that. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. And also, he wants to make it clear that he's not in any way saying marriage is bad, but he's also challenging the culture in which he lives. Now, it is very hard for us in the 21st century and with so much cultural change behind us to to, as Protestants especially, to go back into the mindset. But for the Greeks and Romans, virginity in and of itself was something semi-magical and pure. And Paul in verse 28, if you marry, you don't sin. If a virgin marries, she does not sin. Paul is, is not saying that there's some sort of impurity to it. What he gets here at this point is those who marry will experience distress in this life. He, and I would spare you that. So his teaching on marriage goes into this more general viewpoint of responding to what the gospel means. And we don't have the time for it today, but if you've seen this, the stickers on the back of my car, or you've heard the saying, but not of this world, Paul goes there here. Those who mourn as though they were not mourning, those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no possessions, and those who deal with the world, as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of the world is passing away. This, this kind of sums up what this gospel change means and how it should affect us on the inside. We as Christians have a duty to liberate those who are in bondage, but we know in the knowledge of Christ that bondage itself shall go away. We as Christians have a duty to dispose of our possessions in a way that builds the common wheel and is good for all. But in the same way, we know 
our possessions are going away. In some ways, the, the mourning, the pain, the, the fear of death, that too is going away. And even in the odd ways, those who are rejoicing, they are not rejoicing. The joy we have now is, the, is a passing fancy compared to the joy we will have in the future. So we continue to 32. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the affairs of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried woman and the virgin are anxious about the affairs of the Lord, so that they may be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about the affairs of the world, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to put any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. And here we get to the, the time the knot that First Corinthians 7 is going towards. They have asked Paul, what should we do about marriage? What should we do about the circumstances in which we find ourselves in our lives? And Paul here says his main point in all of this teaching is not to put any restraint, but to promote good order and unhindered devotion to the Lord. And so in his opinion, the reason he prefers celibacy over marriage is because in celibacy, you are free to be 100% devoted to the Lord. Now that is a challenge because we know in church history, there's been a lot of cases of celibacy and monks and that kind of thing that were not devoted to the Lord, but just took the fact they were celibate or virginal and made that the thing they put up on the pedestal. And Paul here again is going against even the Roman culture saying that's not the point. The point here is total devotion to the Lord. And that gets into the other things that we've dealt with today. You can be totally devoted to the Lord regardless of your circumstances. It doesn't matter whether you are Gentile or whether you are Jewish. You can be devoted to the Lord in the fullness of your heart. You may be working a job that you enjoy or you may be toiling under force, but in all things, there can be full, unhindered devotion to the Lord. Finally, we close off the chapter with 36. If anyone thinks that he is not really behaving properly towards his fiance, if his passions are strong, and so it has to be, let him marry as he wishes. It is no sin. Let them marry. But if someone stands firm in his resolve, being under no necessity, but having his own desire under control, and has determined in his mind to keep her as his fiance, he will do well. So then he who marries his fiance does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do better. A wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, only in the Lord. But in my judgment, she is more blessed if she remains as she is, and I think that I too have the Spirit of God. That concludes 1 Corinthians chapter 7. A bit of miscellany once we get past the first bit and be in the interest of brevity and getting through the entire book, we had to condense this. But the main guide is, as you study it at home, and I, I really hope you are following along at home and reading through this book with us. We're spending a lot of time on it. We're going through it. My invitation to all of you watching, 
is is to make First Corinthians your your January February reading list, so we can really just get this book down. the The core to First Corinthians seven and really the whole thing is the gospel and the fact that the world has changed, that Christ has come and He is risen, and it's not something. I don't want to lose the salvation through faith alone thing, but I'm going to risk the James here. The, the, the faith of Christ, the belief in Christ, has to be something that brings forth action and change. Or if you, it doesn't, you have to ask yourself, do you truly believe the story that Jesus Christ has come, paid the debts of sin, and died and been resurrected? Because I don't think there is any way conceivably to go through life as if nothing has changed, if that gospel is true. Let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the witness of the early church that went before us. We have been through many struggles and trials that they have not but in many ways they have set the path and the directions in which we go help us to be content into whatever lawful states we are called help us to see that we are not inferior because of a paycheck or because we lack freedom or others do not like us. Lord, help us to see that your gospel has made a change in the world. We ask this through your holy name. Amen.